Hello and welcome to this month's BJA Education Podcast. Today I'm talking with Dr. Simon Denning, who is a consultant paediatric anaesthetist at QMC in Nottingham, who's written an article on anaesthesia for cleft lip and palate surgery with Dr. Elaine Eng and Dr. Wong Riff from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. So just to start with, for those who don't do these surgeries, and maybe the last time studying this was in medical school, uh, what is cleft lip and cleft palate, and why do we operate on these children? So these are grouped together as orofacial clefts, and, and that comprises of cleft lip with or without cleft palate, um, or, or cleft palate on its own. And the main reason to operate and, and correct these deformities is to ensure that the child is able to adequately feed and to develop velopharyngeal function and speech uh, later on in life. Um, so as you can imagine, cleft lip and palate or cleft lip with or without cleft palate includes um, a cleft in the lip itself and potentially in the, the primary palate and a cleft palate on its own generally is a is a, a cleft in the soft or soft and hard palate together. Hmm. There are many classification systems used to define these problems. Um, probably too much detail for the podcast today, but the, the most commonly seen is the VO classification, and it uses uh, a score of one to four to describe cleft of the soft palate only, cleft of the soft and hard palate together, a cleft that encompasses the soft hard palate and the alveolus and lip uh, unilaterally, and then a cleft of the palate and lip bilaterally. Mm-hmm. And you describe several different types of cleft, um, so unilateral, um, bilateral, and whether it's affecting the soft hard palate and the lip, or, or just one of these areas. Um, do these influence the treatment plan or you know, the prognosis for that child if it's untreated? Um, so, as you as you mentioned, but both cleft lips and cleft palates can be described as complete or incomplete, which is fairly um, uh, commonsensical and unilateral or bilateral. Um, generally, uh, the main issues early on include um, feeding. And as you can imagine, when a baby feeds, they need to create a vacuum within the mouth and if you have a cleft in the lip uh, or palate, you may be unable to maintain that vacuum and therefore get poor expression from breastfeeding or, or unable to get any milk from a bottle. But also you may entrain air through that and, and nutrition can be an issue early on, especially in cleft palates. Um, they may need extra help and actually up to and including NG feed to maintain nutrition prior to their procedure. In terms of prognosis, once the um, cleft lip and or cleft palate is repaired, generally the children go on to do very, very well, unless there are other medical association or medical condition associated with those clefts. And that is a minority of cleft lip and palate patients. However, there are common associations within those conditions, including uh, Stickler's syndrome, Pierre-Robin sequence, um, Down syndrome or trisomy 21 and, and DeGeorge syndrome are all um, syndromic conditions that have associations with cleft lip and palate. Mm-hmm. 
presumably if most of these children have some challenges with feeding uh, or, or with nutrition um, is there an incentive to get the surgery done as soon as possible or when what, what's the ideal timing for surgery taking place yeah thank you so uh, i mean as you are probably aware within anesthesia everything is is a balance of risks and we have to balance the uh, correction of feeding issues with the size of the child and any other comorbidities that may be present so generally in the uk we aim to correct cleft lips within three to six months of age and then cleft palates generally between six and 12 months of age. Um, I know locally in Nottingham, we aim for the three month mark for lips and the six month mark for palates. And those children generally do very well. However, the guidance within the UK, as I say, is three to six and six to 12 months. And the evidence for correcting palates at six months and 12 months is, is very vague. Different centres have their own pathways for that. Waiting longer, as we've seen with COVID, um, these are elective surgeries that have generally been uh, quite badly affected by the COVID pandemic and, and certain children are seeing long delays in their uh, cleft corrections, which is very unfortunate. However, pushing these back, cleft lips can generally be corrected at any age with, with good results. And we see that a lot in developing world mission work and, and charity work. Um, children who have grown up with cleft lips can often have those repaired without too many issues. Um, however, cleft palate is more time sensitive. And as I said previously, the velopharyngeal function, the speech and the feeding issues uh, need to be corrected earlier, the better, so that the child doesn't make compensatory mechanisms and they take those further down the line into, into life. And in UK practice, the children are seen by speech and language therapists and feeding therapists early to try and help with these issues. But as I say, COVID has been an issue and has pushed some of these cleft palate corrections back past the 12 month period. And it's something that these cleft teams are aware of and they're trying to process as, as much as possible. Mm. So just from what you're saying, it sounds like the, the Nottingham pathway, the cleft lips are done at three months, do you say? And then Generally. palates are done at six. That to me, that sounds like they would be the other way around. If the palates can, um, if the lips can, you kind of wait longer. Do you know the reasoning for having it that way around? Or? So cleft lips, especially in patients with with both, repairing the cleft lip is a less risky procedure and can be done at an earlier age. Um, the the smaller children can cope with that procedure and the surgeons are able to make very good repairs on the lips and primary palates before they then go on to this maybe slightly trickier procedure which requires the child to grow a bit more um, to give a bit more space and a bit more tissue more importantly to repair the palate appropriately uh, obviously the younger you operate on them the less tissue the less growth the child has had to try and allow complete repair uh, with a good result right and um, so how does the perioperative pathway differ for the cleft lip um, compared with the cleft palate cases? The cleft lips are generally younger, um, but with a, a procedure that is potentially shorter and has a lower risk of, of post-operative airway complications. Um, generally, children having cleft lip repair alone go home the next day. So they're kept overnight in our centre and generally go home the next day once they've been shown to be able to feed appropriately, 
with fluids, a liquid diet, and then they go home. With the cleft palates, they generally have a slightly longer stay, usually one to three days in hospital. And that first night is generally under closer monitoring on the ward because they are at risk of of airway complications. Um, If we're particularly worried in theatre before extubation or or immediately after extubation, the surgeons or the anaesthetists may well place a, a nasopharyngeal airway or a nasal stent to maintain airway patency in children where we deem the risk to be much higher. And that might include um, Pierre Robin sequence children or, or other syndromic children. So it's not something we do in every case, but it is something we consider in the cleft palate repairs when necessary. And just while you're on that point, I remember in the article you mentioned the um, use of tongue sutures. Um, along with the nasal stents sometimes to, I guess, preemptively have a plan in place for managing airway obstruction? Or is that a sort of securing measure to keep the tongue out of the way? Is that something that if the kid develops obstruction, you would maybe tighten the strings? (laughs) Uh, No, as you say, it's a, it's a, a preemptive measure. It's not done uniformly. And we mentioned it in the article for completeness. Um, it's done generally on surgical preference, um, and we don't tend to do it in, in our centre in Nottingham, but it is a suture placed through the tongue so that the tongue can be easily manipulated if patency is compromised. So you can pull the tongue forward, basically, to allow uh, the airway to open. Um, however, looking at the evidence for tongue sutures, it, it's very vague, and there's no difference in outcomes between children who have tongue sutures and don't have tongue sutures. So it tends to be surgical preference. So um, not to be alarmed if you do see that being done. Mm-hmm. So if you're called to a, a kid who's had the cleft palate repair the day before and the signs of obstruction, would you be, you know, if you saw a couple of sutures dangling out the mouth, is that the sort of thing you'd see or taped on the side? Yeah, they'd probably be taped to the and to manipulate the, the tongue to the chin, and you could um, uh, manipulate that appropriately. And if they didn't have tongue sutures, then again, normal airway rescue manoeuvres, taken in the context of the child in front of you. Assessing for any syndromic associations, micronathia, whether they have a nasal pharyngeal airway in or not. I guess doing our normal airway maneuvers, but also being careful of disrupting any suture lines that may be present. Uh, obviously, the surgeons have worked hard to repair that cleft, and and inserting anything blind into the airway could be potentially disruptive to those suture lines. So again, something to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess you don't want to be the person who's popped a slightly too big Goodell. <laughs> and and, yeah, and then potentially having to go back to theatre for that mm-hmm. reason rather than uh, an airway rescue reason, for sure. Mm-hmm. Just out of interest, the degree of um, feeding difficulties, I guess, can vary, but do a lot of these kids need optimising pre-op in terms of NG feed? Or... Yeah, so the, 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 the more severe feeding issues tend to be tackled with the, the nasogastric feeding, as you've mentioned. Um, Otherwise, it's it's quite centre dependent as to whether patients are uh, weaned onto cup feeding or whether they use. There are many um, feeding aids out there, including special teats on bottles, or um, some centres prefer sippy cups. Some centres prefer soft uh, teats on the bottles. As I say, it depends on the centre itself. Um, and if you are interested and in, and involved in in working with cleft surgery then it might be worth spending time with the cleft team and the feeding specialist there that might be able to show you uh, what they use locally part of 
the post-operative period is obviously adjusting to that new diet, whether it's a, a soft diet for the slightly older children, especially after the cleft palate repairs, or whether they've put the time in preoperatively to wean from either a bottle to a cup or to a different teat or, uh, or to a, uh, a specially adjusted uh, system allowing the baby to feed. No child post-operatively is going to go without nutrition, um, but it just, as I say, depends on the, the centre's practice and each centre will have their own pathway for that. So just coming back to the epidemiology, at the start of your article you talk about quite a wide range in the incidence of cleft lip and palate between different countries. Um, do we know why this is? Yeah, so there, there is a small genetic uh, component observed, and we can see that in the UK, for example, if either parent has a cleft, then um, the chance of having a child with a cleft is between 2 and 8%. So there is a familial association. If the parent and a close family member has a cleft, then that increases to 10 to 20% chance. So there are genetic components. However, the main risk factors identified tend to be teratogenic exposure during early pregnancy, so during the development of the, the lip and palate area. Uh, and that is generally things that we are already aware of. So smoking during pregnancy, alcohol during pregnancy, certain medications, including uh, valproate, all of these teratogenic influences can increase the risk or chance of having a, a child with a cleft lip and or palate, especially when exposed during that sort of early four to 12 week period of, of the pregnancy in the first trimester. Mm -hmm. So how does the incidence vary throughout the world then? And since you did your fellowship in Canada, is there a particularly high incidence there? For cleft lip and palate, Canada is fairly average. Um, for cleft palate, actually, the native population in Canada, especially in um, British Columbia, ha uh, has a very high incidence. But there are international variations on the incidence of both cleft lip and palate and an isolated cleft palate, and they, they vary between the two. So um, cleft lip and palate is, is a high incidence in Asia and Latin America, lower in Africa. Oddly, tends to be more prevalent in males across the board. And then uh, cleft palate alone we've mentioned the indigenous population in british columbia and tends to be again low in africa but cleft palate alone is seen more in the female population so there are some unique incidences uh, among these conditions and they tend to relate more to your heritage and and in immigrant populations they have uh, an incidence similar to their country of origin rather than their country of settlement so that would that would again make a, an argument for a, a genetic component rather than a complete environmental um, effect. Yeah, although in some way I suppose environmental factors can sometimes be linked with cultural differences, so they may follow people who migrate from one area to another. So do we see orofacial clefts in a higher incidence in syndromic children? The majority of orofacial clefts are isolated anomalies. However, there are certain specific associations and there are over 200 syndromes that may have cleft as a, a known part of that syndrome. And some that we see commonly are trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, uh, DeGeorge syndrome, Stickler syndrome and uh, Pierre Robin sequence. So those 
uh, have up to a 30% association with orofacial clefts and they each bring their own uh, individual associations, including congenital cardiac issues and, and airway difficulties. Now, it may be that because the child has been identified as having a syndrome, they have a full medical workup. It may be that certain submucous clefts and, and isolated cleft palates, for example, are identified that wouldn't necessarily be seen or, or, or identified otherwise. So it may be that the association with these syndromes is so high because we're looking at the child in detail, um, but they are definitely associated with these syndromes. And any patient that you see with a cleft lip or palate um, should be assessed appropriately and investigated appropriately to make sure that they don't have any other uh, cardiac, uh, renal, uh, musculoskeletal issues and, and airway difficulty potentially that, that may complicate their surgery. Hmm. And I think you um, you've got a nice table with these different syndrome um, with the challenges for us as anaesthetists and um, summarised quite nicely in your article. You draw attention to the fact that some of these airways become more difficult with age and some become easier to manage with age. Typically, um, Piera band sequence, for example, um, micronathia, glossoptosis, um, cleft palate is a is a common association in those patients. However, as their jaw and face develops, they tend to be easier to intubate. Um, so that may be a, a consideration for delaying the surgery slightly to make sure that that is appropriately manageable. Mm -hmm. On the other side, Treacher-Collins uh, syndrome and Goldenhaar syndrome or uh, hemifacial microsomia, they tend to be more difficult as the patient grows. Um, so again, it's about balancing risks and making sure that you are comfortable and have a plan in place for uh, intubating those patients. With tools available to us today, including video laryngoscopes of various manufacturers, these issues maybe aren't as potentially scary as they once were, although they are, they, they are very difficult cases to manage. Mm -hmm. One of the benefits we have here is that we can identify these issues prior anaesthetic and and therefore make a plan. These aren't patients that have unexpected difficult airways, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you you have a pretty good understanding of what challenges you might have. And now we've got so much different equipment available that at whatever time they do come for surgery, you know what you may be your best kit is going to be to use and you've got backups available. Absolutely. So you're not you're not going to go into one of these cases without a plan in place. And that, as always in anesthesia, that includes plan A, B, C, D, E all the way down, you know. Um, so you're going to have the equipment available. You're going to have extra hands available. You're going to have airway specialist colleagues available if necessary to enable the best management of these patients possible with the hope that, as always, if you prepare for the worst, then things go really well, you know, uh, and, and things are fairly straightforward. But as I say, these aren't unexpected difficult airways that would cause problems and, and ad adaptation on the fly. Mm -hmm. Just while we're on the topic of airway management, two things I wanted to ask you are in the post-operative period, what are the more common things that we would be asked to come and see these children for as anaesthetists? And if, if they are having airway issues, are these mm. simple bedside airway um, optimising measures, do these tend to correct the problem? Or are they quite often, if there's an issue, they need to come back to theatre for surgical intervention? So I'd say for the majority of cases, if there's going to be an airway problem, 
it will happen in the immediate post-operative period and and may respond to insertion of a nasopharyngeal airway as we spoke about earlier if you're going to do that i would try and have the surgeons present so that uh, as, as i say suture lines can be monitored and maintained um, if bleeding is an issue it may be that, that you need to go back to theater in in the immediate post-operative period and again we're less likely to be able to uh, definitively deal with that without the surgical team yes of course and can i ask when these children come back for subsequent anesthesia for either related surgery or unrelated surgery does this influence what kind of airway management we should be either using or avoiding how long after surgery can we assume that the surgical site has healed the airway should be fully healed within um, six weeks of surgery. Uh, and following that, there's no contraindication to nasal intubation, for example, um, in children that have had cleft lip and palate repairs. That being said, some of these children will come back later on in life for something called a pharyngoplasty, which is a procedure to shape the palate to alleviate uh, a, a sort of a nasal tone uh, when they speak. And if they've had a pharyngoplasty, their nasal intubation is contraindicated uh, and it may be more difficult if you try it without the knowledge that they have had a pharyngoplasty mm. because, as I say, the palate, the soft palate will have been manipulated and and surgically changed to try and improve their speech and tone of voice. And that's thereafter, it's not for a sort of period of time, you should kind of avoid that if you can. Um, yeah, yeah, for... anyone with a pharyngoplasty will need probably to avoid nasal intubation, but also mm. discussion with the surgical team as to other options if that's the case. Um, um, so I think your, your article describes very nicely the um, intraoperative management and the conduct of anaesthesia um, so I wasn't really going to grill you on all of those aspects, you know, analgesia, airway management mm. and um, pre-medication and emergence at the end. Um, but maybe quite useful might be hearing your experience of some of these cases, like maybe a, something that stood out as a bit more challenging or a bit more complex um, and some of the issues that you've had to address in cases like that, or how you've managed with them. Yeah, so I, I think there are two things I'd like to mention there um, in terms of cases I've been involved in. Uh, the first was a, a difficult, I say difficult airway, it was a challenging airway. Um, and it, it was a child who had a complete cleft lip and palate. And, and because of the position of that cleft lip and palate, it, it's actually, if you're not expecting it, the laryngoscope can slip into that cleft. And therefore, you're not quite sure what you're looking at when you insert the laryngoscope and you're looking for the um, airway structures. So that's one thing to note, I would say, is if in children with complete cleft lips and palates, just beware of where the laryngoscope is sitting and that you're not looking into the cleft rather than looking into the, the glottis, as it were. The second thing I would just flag up, we mentioned it briefly earlier, is patients with large or difficult cleft palate repairs often have swelling around the suture lines in the post-operative period. Prior to extubation, it's very good practice to review the airway with the laryngoscope, uh, make sure that you've suctioned in the airway, but also behind the uvula, making sure there's no uh, chance of a coroner's clot. As you do that, try and assess airway patency and whether you may need that nasopharyngeal airway we talked about. Um, I have been in a situation where we've extubated a child and then it becomes very difficult for them to ventilate. You can see there's airway obstruction, the mouth is clear, 
the tongue's out of the way. Um, but because these children are uh, obligate nasal breathers, they're having trouble passing air through the nasal cavities. And it may be that you need to re-anesthetize and allow the surgeons to carefully place that nasopharyngeal airway before you re-attempt emergence from anesthesia. Again, once the surgical, uh, once the nasopharyngeal airway is in place, you may then again need to reassess whether there's any blood in the airway, if the suture lines are still intact, etc., etc. So re-anesthetizing for that period is recommended, um, but it is something to be aware of. Your vigilance doesn't end once the tube is out. You need to make sure, as always, that the patient is is safe going to the recovery area or post-operative anesthesia care unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for um, highlighting that point. People who aren't doing this routinely, it'd be quite easy to maybe go down the wrong route of just doing what you would normally do for a patient who's struggling after the after extubation, suctioning, you know, with or without direct vision and potentially causing quite severe um, complications. Yeah, and, and disruption of, of the work that the surgeons have painstakingly um spent the last sort of three hours doing, you know. Mm. I think the surgeons definitely are our friends in these cases, and they often have a huge amount of experience with the, with cleft patients. They're very specialised, um, and it's really important that we continue a dialogue with them and make sure that we're both uh, working for the safest possible outcome for the patient uh, and not jumping in blind, as you say, with, with airway manoeuvres or with uh, suction. Mm-hmm. Great. And um, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about uh, that we haven't covered so far? No, I think um, it was a it was a pleasure to write this article. It's a team that I really enjoy working in. And um, I think anyone who's seen images of, of children who've had their cleft lip and palates repaired see how much of a difference it makes for these children and these families. There is still a social stigma related to facial anomalies like these clefts. And it's just so rewarding being able to be a part of that process. Well, that might be a good place for us to come to an end. Um, sure. Well, thank you for listening to this BJA Education podcast with Dr. Simon Denning from Nottingham University Hospitals. Be sure to read the full article, Cleft Lip and Palate Surgery, available online at bjaed.org and visit our podcast archive to hear from other authors.